Who said petitions don't work? More than a million people signed the NFU's food standards petition recently, and it seems to have borne fruit. 90,000 letters were sent to MPs, and that's for every single MP in the country got one. And as we move towards a carbon-neutral farming industry, how do we know what works and the effect that changes in practices may have on the business? This is not about waiting to be paid to do this. This might well come through in the form of regulation and being forced to do this. We'll hear more on the Trade and Agriculture Commission and put the spotlights on rural carbon later in the programme. The Week in Agriculture. This is the Farming Programme with Steve Orchard. Hello, welcome. I'm Steve Orchard. Hope you've had a good week and you're keeping okay. Plenty to talk about this week as ever. Let's start with a look at the farming headlines. The dairy sector has been one of the hardest hit by the consequences of COVID-19. Now MPs are calling for evidence to find out whether DEFRA's help has been sufficient and fair. If you've been affected and you have evidence or comments to make, contact the RABDF in the first instance. Over 40 Yorkshire and North Lincolnshire farmers are taking part in an environmental project that could help return atmospheric CO2 to pre-industrial levels. The Sustainable Landscapes Humber project is also hoping to reduce flooding and improve soil health, and we'll be talking more about that on next week's farming programme. A key sheep sector event planned to take place this month, then moved to October, has been cancelled altogether for this year. NSA Sheep 2020 will not now go ahead. Instead, the biennial event will return to the three-county showground Malvern in July of 2022. And sugar beet growers are set to receive a market-linked bonus this year after EU average sugar prices hit the trigger point of €375 Euro per tonne for the first time. And let's get an update now on the current sugar beet crop from Simon Leeds at British Sugar. So we finally got some much needed rain, albeit too late for some crops. And over June, I live down near Stamford, and over June I recorded a very useful 68 millimetres. And what was good, it was spread fairly evenly over the period so that that will certainly have helped. And so most crops have continued to grow away from those horrible earlier dry conditions and the, some, you know, some fairly poor seed beds. But there does remain this year, perhaps more than normal, considerable variation between plants and within fields as well. So some crops have reached target, you know, reached full target canopy by the sort of the the summer equinox, 21st of June, and and many were not far behind that. We continue to monitor aphid numbers, um, and they are now showing much lower numbers than earlier, particularly uh, down towards East Anglia. and as crops mature, the risk of virus transmission is reduced as uh, mature plants resistance does take effect from the 12-leaf stage. However, it's really important that you, the growers continue to monitor crops for apra thresholds, uh, at least up to the 16-18 leaf stage, and particularly in fields where you've got a range of growth stages. Please adhere to spraying advice, take action as soon as you reach a threshold. And remember, um, up to it's one green wingless stated per four plants up until the 12th leaf stage and one green wingless per plant above that 12th leaf stage so those those thresholds are really important we are st- now starting to see some virus symptoms uh, showing in the crops and we're also now starting to see uh, bolters and weed beet appearing in crops so they do need managing uh, it's really important you get on top of those because uh, one plant can set a huge number of seeds and if you are using the Conviso Smart uh, technology, uh, you know, they are a, a priority for removal of bolters. 
we're getting to that time of year now where it's important to keep an eye open for sort of early foliar disease such as powdery mildew, rust, uh, and really follow BBR advice on sprays and controls. And it's really important that uh, you continue to control beet growth on old beet clamps because not only is that you know, a potential source of virus, but it also a source of cosprin rust uh, moving into the crops. Just thinking about advice and support, sadly, due to the COVID situation, uh, the BBRO have cancelled the very popular summer open days, which are always so valuable. But instead, they're holding what they're calling Beat Field 20 virtually live, which is next week, the 6th to the 10th of July. So watch out for this program of short presentations being released as of the 6th. And it'll be culminating with a live webinar with Professor Mark Stevens and Dr. Simon Bowen and the wider BBRO team. And that's next Friday, the 10th of July. And all of those will be streamed directly to a screen near you. So keep an eye open for those. In the factory, uh, we continue to work tirelessly to support all our customers in these challenging times. And a really proud part of great industry that is helping to uh, support the nation. And clearly a major activity is continuing to deliver the required maintenance in preparation for the campaign, uh, which will be coming to us in September. And as ever, if you need any support or help with the crop, then do please contact your local contract manager. They continue to operate through these times and uh, will arrange to meet in a suitable location to ensure social distancing, you know, should that be required. So I think, uh, you know, that's, that's about where we're at at the moment. This is going to be our last time together, isn't it? I think it probably will be. Yes, my successor takes over the uh, middle of this month, so uh, we'll arrange a suitable handover. And you're going to be enjoying your very early retirement? Something like that, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, Simon, on behalf of all of us at the Farming Programme over the years, not just for me, but Sean previously and Sally as well, thank you so much for what you've done for us uh, over the years, and I wish you all the very, very best. No, it's been an absolute pleasure and the same for you guys. Thank you, Simon. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. To Agronomy Now, Sean Sparling of Sparling Agronomy Services joins us. Good morning, Sean. Yes, morning, Steve. Another interesting week of weather goes rushing by, doesn't it? It never ceases to amaze me. Um, the variation we get in this country, the week, the space of seven days, 20 degree difference in top temperature, 32 degrees a week ago, and then down to 14 degrees, 12 to 14 degrees at the end of this week. So, um, yeah, uh, well, while we're talking about sugar beet, by the way, worth just remembering that you can no longer apply any product containing desmedifam to sugar beet. After the 1st of July, that's now gone. So Betanol Max Pro, Sniper, Betanol Compact, Betasana Trio, Trinity, all of those products, you can no longer use them. So make sure that you are safe and legal. If you get an ACCS inspection, for example, and they pick up on that, it could cost you dearly. And while we're talking about sugar beet, virus now appealing pretty much everywhere. But ladybirds have increased almost logarithmically in the last seven days. Massive numbers of them. Remember what we said before, the aphids are a threat and one wingless nymph per four plants up until 12 leaves of the plant. Once you get beyond that, that drops to one wingless nymph per plant. Once you get up to 18 leaves, the threat is largely an irrelevance to us. Um, and I think the fact that most of the insecticides running out, you know, that leads you to just 
be sensible out there in the field. And if you've got virus, you've got virus just like everybody else has got virus. But we are seeing other things which look yellow in the field. So we're seeing capsid damage and it's an irrelevant little pest. It, it's out there doing its own thing. Just forget about it. Don't try and treat it. You get the tips of the leaves turning yellow and you'll see an exit scar on the main rib of the leaf. That's capsid and it's not worth bothering about. But also an awful lot of manganese, magnesium, nitrogen, phosphorus, potash, sodium, zinc deficiencies out there. But understand what you're trying to deal with if you've got magnesium deficiency in the field and that's all you can find then put 20 p's worth of bitter salts on don't go and put 10 quids worth of something on which has got about 50 other nutrients in which might or might not make a difference um treat what you're seeing and don't waste your money winter wheat T3 pretty much all largely finished now. We're pushing through the cheesy ripe stage in most of these winter wheat crops out there. So most of the legal recommendations for fungicides have now passed. So check with your agronomist and check with the growth stage of the crop before you do anything else. We've seen in other years T4s, T5s, absolute waste of your time and your money and largely illegal anyway. So don't worry about them. Aphids, not a problem in cereals, winter cereals, once the cheesy ripe stage has come and gone. But do check those cutoff timings and make sure you're still safe if you are still applying fungicides. Um, spring barley, spring wheat, just continuing to shift and to turn. A dry March, April, May of 2020 may well yet play a massive part in the cereal harvest, but for now they seem to be doing okay and this rain is annoying but very, very good for us farmers. Spring beans, downy mildew, rust, chocolate spot moving now. Remember once the crop sloughed, chocolate spot will help to desiccate that crop, but brookid beetle is still a big threat to podding crops. So be prepared for a bad brookid year. We often get them in these hot, dry years. And remember also that in peas and beans, uh, you only have one application of perimicarb. And perimicarb is much better at controlling the black bean aphid than the lambda cyhalothrins or the pyrethroids. But you do only have one application per crop. And your threshold for black bean aphid in spring beans, which can carry more than 30 different viruses, by the way, is 10% of plants infested. Now, you'll see them on the outside of the field quite easily. You'll see them absolutely lathered in. Just walk into the field and have a look because it's very rare the rest of the field will be full of black bean aphid. You'll find hot spots and pockets, so perhaps just treat those hot spots in there. Peas going out of flower very, very quickly now, turning quickly in the heat mm -hmm. that we took last week. But Amistar that was applied at the beginning or azoxystrobin or these protectant fungicides which were applied early on in the flowering process have done really, really well. Remember, if you're thinking about putting another one on, it's a 35-day harvest interval with azoxystrobin, for example. AFOX itself, Perimicarb, has a 14-day harvest interval. Watch these harvest intervals and take care. Pea aphids are still a threat in the more immature plants, in the more backward crops, which are only just starting to flower, and it's a 15% of plants infested with pea aphid at early flowering. That's your threshold for pea aphid. Misers, persicae and potatoes now starting to colonise. And direct feeding, very, very obvious. The puckering in the top leaves, that damage is very, very clear. So check with your processor before you go applying any insecticide for misers in potatoes. Remember things like Topeki, for example, have restrictions on them from certain processors. So just make sure that you're safe and that you are legal. Um, the getting hold of the insecticides is proving more of a problem than <laughs> than the aphids at the moment so a windy wet spell looking likely to come now blight still remains high on the prior on the priority list if you've got potatoes keep to that seven day interval there's not going to be an awful lot of spraying now before the middle of next week looking at the forecast so 2020 the year that just keeps on giving let's see what the next seven days bring us
If you'd like to talk to Sean, his website for contact is sasagronomy.co.uk and he'll be back with another update same time next week on The Farming Programme. The Week in Agriculture. This is The Farming Programme with Steve Orchard. This week, Liz Truss, Secretary of State for International Trade, announced the formation of a Trade and Agriculture Commission. This comes as a result of immense pressure on the government from the NFU, backed by a million-plus petition, with the demand for our very high standards of food production to be applied to imported food post-Brexit. And we'll find out in the coming days the detail of what the Commission will be looking at and what it's hoping to achieve. And I'm joined today by NFU Deputy President Stuart Roberts and East Midlands Regional Director Gordon Corner. Gordon, to you first of all, it wasn't just the petition that the NFU used to get the message across to government, was it? 500,000 people signed up to receive a newsletter from the NFU, which, which is an ongoing thing explaining what we're doing. And also, it, it, when you did sign the petition, you had the option of a, of a letter you could send to your MP. And 90,000 letters were sent to MPs, and that's about every single MP in the country got one. And now we have the announcement of the Trade and Agriculture Commission being set up this week. Is it what you wanted? Liz Truss wrote to Minette Batters, the president, this week and said that it was going to be set up. And, and you know, But she also said it was going to be advisory and time-limited. Well, that might be so. Well, we can, yeah, it's not desirable, but the critical thing is that, that there's, the recommendations are debated by Parliament... Yeah, alongside you know, the requirement for the government to set out its response in a transparent, transparent and accountable way. So it, it will need to have a bit of teeth. And that's the work that's been going on now. Stuart Roberts, I guess the hope has to be that this doesn't end up being just another committee uh, that meets endlessly but never actually achieves what we want it to achieve. Well, look, that's the, that's the big test. Uh, I fundamentally believe the Commission can have an important role to play uh, in assessing the terms of, of trade agreements, in advising governments, uh, and ultimately looking at some of the, the final detail uh, in trade agreements. I, I have every faith it can do that if, it, if we make sure that it's got the right membership, the right reporting structures, is accountable, and most importantly of all, has clear uh, and defined terms of reference. It's definitely a step in the right direction. Let's hope it does the job that we're hoping it will do. Absolutely right. And, Gordon, what happens next? Um, the next thing is that, that we will... We want to take part in, in, in writing the terms of reference, and we clearly want to be on the commission. And we want the commission needs to be made up of, of, of you know, food industry, environmental and animal welfare groups. So, so it, it's a, you know, everything is looked at, um, and, and it, you know, it, it, the commission then sets out a roadmap. You know, for the government when it sets up its trade deals. Gordon Corner, East Midlands Regional Director and Deputy President Stuart Roberts from the NFU, many thanks for joining us. Let's turn to environmental matters now. Slowly but surely, we move towards being a carbon-neutral society and farming has an important part to play in that move. It's generally agreed that to do this, practices need to change, either voluntarily or by a change in the rules. So how do we know what works? How do we know the effect of changes on the viability of the business? To help answer these questions, Savills have modelled a farm. Emily Norton is Director and Head of Rural Research at Savills. Emily, how does it work? Through the Farm Cutting Toolkit and this lovely thing called the Virtual Farm, which is 830 hectares of um, very nice land in um, your part of the world, 
Um, we ran a variety of different scenarios. So at the moment, the virtual farm is a standard arable farm with a pretty typical uh, arable rotation. And then we adopted four different scenarios, an, an extensive mixed farm, an organic arable farm with some forestry, extensive livestock, and then also all forestry. Uh, and what it showed is that the virtual farm, as it is at the moment, is, is pretty profitable. It's doing, it's doing well, very well, but it's also uh, emitting a lot of carbon. Now, if it changes its sort of, you know, entire management approach and went to something um, like extensive livestock, uh, not only would it start um, not being very profitable, but it, it would also um, not do much for its uh, carbon balance. Um, however, um, if it either adopted an extensive mixed farm, so much um, broader area of um, permanent pasture and also forestry, uh, not only does it become a net sequesterer, uh, it also uh, is making a reasonable amount of money. So um, the, the profit level has dropped by just about half, uh, but it, it's still profitable. Uh, and this gives us an understanding across all of these figures uh, of, of what impact that might have if we are forced as an industry to start adopting net zero more seriously than we are at the moment. Now, sequestering, I notice in your report you're saying really is only offsetting a, a relatively small amount, 5.7% of this virtual farm's emissions. So really we're looking at some significant changes to what we do on a farm to make much difference, aren't we? No, absolutely. And I think that's part of the interesting policy balance here. You know, agriculture likes to think that it's the saviour of everybody else who's got a problem because we can lock up carbon in soil or in trees. But actually, the sheer acts of producing food and the interference with the nitrogen cycle in particular means that there'll always be emissions from the farm. And what we don't really understand at the moment is whether those emissions are going to be regulated and we, in effect, have to be net zero within ourselves as a food producing industry before we can sell offsets to other people or whether those offsets will be valuable as they are. So um, adopting a, a, a mixed farming approach means that you are overall a, a net sequesterer, um, but uh, you know the, the impact is, is in you are also producing less food, and the impact on our sort of overall food security balance, uh, particularly in the context of all of the trade negotiations at the moment, becomes an even more difficult decision to be making. So we could change wholesale what we actually do on our farm to uh, grow different crops have pasture and so on what else can we do in a practical way so if we if we kept our farm the same as it is for instance what other things can we do to offset carbon i noticed one thing you talk about is nitrogen fertilizer products um whether you're a conventional arable producer or an organic arable producer the, the use of uh, nitrogen, the use of fertility products and what you are doing to the land to make it more fertile uh, is, is the key aspect um, in uh, understanding your likely emissions balance. So across the whole piece, um, that, that, that's a major issue. So looking at nitrogen usage uh, efficiencies, looking at where you're sourcing and the manufacturing processes um, in that nitrogen are all absolutely critical. And you know, it'd be really interesting to see whether some of the proposed innovations around, for example, nitrogen fixing weeds, so you're mixing legume and grass-based um, cereal crops, you know, that, that could produce a real difference here in terms of reducing um, the dependency that we have upon uh, artificial um, fertility measures. How do we know what's effective? 
Has this been quantified yet? They could say, well, if you do this, it's going to have this result. How do we know what's going to work? So that's one of the most interesting things about the current online calculators that are out there, uh, is that they're not very good at doing that kind of scenario type planning. So in order to get to the results that we got in our research report, we had to run uh, the same, we had to run five different scenarios through the calculator that we used five times, if you see what I mean. So it's not simply a question saying, well, we'll change that down a bit, we'll change that up a bit, and then you produce a different outcome. It's quite a clunky way of doing it, which means that that kind of management intervention um, can be really complicated and, and why I think it is it is a bit of a dissuader for, for most people involved in active agriculture to really sit down and crunch the numbers and take the time. So um, getting support, getting help in to do that and, and working increasingly with these um, online resources to try and understand where the savings might come from um, is really important. And hopefully the technology, those online platforms and calculators will continue to improve to give farmers the tools that they really need to be able to make these decisions. Where can we find out more about this? I'm, I'm reading your reports on your website, savills.co.uk, and there's research articles on there that gives details of these different scenarios and the virtual farm and so on. Where can we find out more, Emily? So um, one of the first things to do is to sort of understand why you are interested in doing a carbon uh, calculation. It's very possible for individuals to do it themselves if they've got access and time to the resources, um, if not, you know, speak to your, your local farming consultant who will be able to help you understand. So the key thing to understand is that there's different kinds of calculators depending on what kind of assessment you need to make. It might be that your supply chain is very interested in the individual carbon impact um, of a particular supply chain. So um, barley going into a molten barley, beer-related supply chain. You, you might be asked by that supply chain to provide carbon data, or you can look at it as this whole holding basis so across the whole of the farm all of the different land uses that you've got and how they balance out so you know it, it's just beginning to do that research speak to your local consultants um, understand what kind of information you need and for who um, and then you can begin to work out which of the calculators which of the resources that are available might be the most suitable ones for you how does the uk compare with the rest of europe the rest of the world in in this regard but actually, the UK is trying to be a global leader at the moment in, in climate change um, targets and in, and in climate change uh, economic incentives as well, particularly post-lockdown. We've seen an awful lot of the um, financial incentives being targeted towards um, green-related buildings emissions and renovating buildings. And some of these things which are really difficult to achieve um, and, and why the emissions declines have been sort of stagnating recently so i'm fully expecting that as we see more agricultural policy announcements coming through uh, in the context of the agriculture but in some of the um you know things that aren't elms uh, <laughs> the things to do with agricultural productivity or soil health or whatever it might be um that they are really targeted at how we can achieve net zero as an industry and, and don't forget you know this is not about waiting to be paid to do this this might well come through in the form of regulation and being forced to do this. Emily, uh, if I want to point somebody towards the website to get, have a read of this and get more information, savills.co.uk research articles, is that right? That, that's absolutely right. You can find me on Twitter at Emily M. Norton. Uh, really interested to hear people's thoughts and views on um, you know, how we make a difference in this stuff because it's something that everybody uh, has to tackle and, and deal with and we, we've got some big realities to face as an industry.
Absolutely. Emily Norton, Director and Head of uh, Rural Research at Savills. Many thanks for joining us on the Farming Programme. My absolute pleasure. Take care now. To the Markets and Prices Report now. Welcome Kit Dickinson from Openfield. Morning, Kit. Good morning, Steve. USDA report this week caught analysts by surprise for a couple of reasons. Firstly, the wheat pound, and secondly, plantings were recorded down by 5 million acres, despite the near-perfect planting conditions in the US. But this didn't change the stocks. The bullish view was a rally should come on the back of this, but it never materialised. There is a question mark, however, on the accuracy of the USDA data this week, as many people are still in lockdown and not able to collate exact data. The old crop market for the UK is very thin, with lots of grain being rolled from June movement into July as consumers overbuy, and the expected surge in demand has not appeared from coming out of lockdown. There is still a lack of selling on new crop, and as I've said before, this is due to the uncertainty around yield and quality, and it is unlikely we will see much new crop come to the market before the combines start rolling. Although it has been a difficult year for winter wheat, there are some good-looking crops out there. There will be some light land wheat ready to combine in two to three weeks, but the main wheat harvest will be as normal in August, especially for the late drilled crops in February. We have also seen some early winter barley and orseed rape combined in Norfolk, and there has been a lot of orseed rape sprayed off this week in the Lincolnshire area. Many thought it would be a late harvest this season, with rape being combined in two weeks now that it has been desiccated, the middle of July would be about average. Prices are still holding firm for new crop with 320 achievable off the combine for August and 340 for May 21. These are good values for the time of year against the five-year average, so it may not be a bad place to start pricing some seed rate if you have a surplus rolled forward from old crop or confidence in the new crop yield. Moving on to barley, as I mentioned earlier, we have seen some winter barley cut in the south and yields so far are very variable, from 1.5 tonne to the acre to 3.5 tonne to the acre. Spring barley is still a long way off given the large area that was drilled late on heavy land and with little moisture in April and May. After the recent rain, barley has come on well, but there is a second growth of barley from the seed that didn't germinate when drilled. This will add complications for combining dates and the agronomic programme from now until harvest. Given the less than ideal growing conditions for spring barley this year, we may not see the bumper crop that the UK was expecting. With export sales already on the books and consumers buying into the domestic market, we may not have the large surplus that we originally thought. So moving on to prices this week, for feed wheat, July 157 to 159, and the same price for August, 157 to 159 as available movement. Moving forward to November, 162 to 164, February, 165 to 167, and May 21, 168 to 170. Milling wheat premiums are circa 25 to 28 pounds. Oilseed rate for July is 320 to 322, August 321 to 323, November 330 to 332, February 333 to 335, and May 336 to 338. Feed barley for July is 122 to 124. August 123 to 125, November 129 to 131, February 132 to 134, and May 21, 136 to 138. For malting barley premiums, please get in touch with your open field farm business manager. 
Thank you very much. Kit and the team at Openfield can be contacted via their website, openfield.co.uk. The Farming Programme. Five-day forecast. Well, a breezy start to the week. We've got some rain each day, but don't get too excited. It's barely hitting a millimetre a day. Some sunny spells and temperatures about normal for the time of year. Winds from the west around 20 miles per hour for Sunday, but gusting up into the 30s. Patchy light rain on and off all day with a little sunshine. Highs of 18 Celsius today. Monday sees the low pressure replaced with a slight high for a couple of days. Winds from the northwest in the upper teens MPH. A little bit more rain, but still patchy sun and highs again of 18 Celsius. Through the middle of the week, the wind backs round to the southwest and calms to between 10 and 15 miles per hour. Drier and warmer for Tuesday and Wednesday, with temperatures hitting around 22 Celsius. Slightly cooler for the latter part of the week. Westerly winds on Thursday, light and variable on Friday. And we'll end the week with some rain on Friday. A cooler day generally with a little sunshine. Highs around 16 Celsius. Well, that's it from the team for this week. The Farming Programme is now available on the website, the app, and from wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Steve Orchard, back same time next week. In the meantime, stay safe, stay positive, and have a good week.